one of the guys that are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, <clears throat> we very much want you to have a Bible. And so receive that as a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. Four verses this morning, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive uh, the spirit of bondage again to fear. I'm going to read that again because that's going to be a major focus for us this morning. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Let's pray together. Father, we never, never lose our sense of awe at being able to turn to Your Word, to be able to study it, to receive revelation of You and what You're like and what Your plans are for our lives. And we pray this morning that as Your Word is taught, that it would not be in, uh, in word only, but in demonstration of the Spirit and in power. We pray that You would speak to us personally and individually right from Your throne, Lord. You know our names. You know more than our names. Uh, you know the very number of hairs upon our heads at this very instant, each one of us. And Lord, you know just what you want to speak to us today through these four verses, and we pray that you would do that by your Spirit. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In Romans chapter 6 through 8, uh, Paul addresses the subject of our sanctification as Christians. And chapter 8, Paul is emphasized through the entire chapter the uh, absolute uh, and uh, foundational and irreplaceable part that the Holy Spirit plays in our sanctification as Christians. There is no, uh, if we could call him an ingredient, there is no single more important dynamic or ingredient in, in the sanctification or the making holy of a Christian than the person and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives uh, as Christians. Paul then went on, as we saw the last couple of weeks, to tell us that our sanctification isn't solely the responsibility of the Holy Spirit, but that we play a part in it also, and the importance of not sowing to the flesh or to the old nature, and then beyond that, sowing to the Spirit, and then beyond that, the fact that we are debtors to live a holy life and a Christian life and then further the importance of mortifying uh, the deeds of the body or the deeds of the flesh. And now in verses 14 through 17, Paul moves into a different subject uh, that having to do, still do, with, with our sanctification, and the subject is an absolutely vital uh, one. And the subject is, what is to be our motivation as Christians for living a godly life? And the reason this is very important, uh, that Paul addresses it, and we study it here today, is that because possessing a proper motivation is really a vital key to accomplishing anything significant in life. No one accomplishes anything significant in life without possessing a proper motivation. I, in this regard, I'm particularly fond of a story about a young man who took a shortcut home uh, late one night through a cemetery, and he fell into an open grave. And uh, he began to cry out and scream out from the depths of that particular grave and uh, even attempted to climb out, but to no avail. There was no one even remotely close to hear uh, his screams and his calls, and he uh, had no ability to, uh, nobody to lend him a hand in getting out of the depth of that grave. And so he chose to settle down for the night in a corner of the darkened grave to wait uh, the morning. A little a while later, another person came uh, taking the same route through the cemetery, the same shortcut home, and they fell into the same grave. Uh, and this same man began to scream, and he began to holler and call out for help and uh, started clawing the sides of the grave and, and trying to get out uh, just as the first man uh, had done. And suddenly the second man 
he heard a voice from the dark corner of the grave saying, you can't get out of here. Uh, but he did. Uh, but he did. And he got out of that grave because the second man possessed a motivation uh, that the first man did not uh, possess, and the motivation makes all of the difference. I think about uh, the opera star Mary Garden, considered one of the greats in opera in terms of in the United States of America in the 20th century. And uh, there was one thing that she would always tell herself. She was always assured an absolute full house whenever she performed. But before she would go out onto the stage with every performance, she would always uh, tell herself before going on the stage this thing. She would say, there's one person in that vast audience uh, who has made a great sacrifice to come and to hear me, and for that person, I'm going to give my very best. And that motivation brought out the best in her, in her career. There's a, a coach by the name of Pat Riley. He co was the coach of five championship teams in the National Basketball Association, uh, four of them with the dreaded Lakers and one of them with the Miami Heat. Uh, but uh, in terms of motivation, he said there's always the motivation of wanting to win. Everybody has that. But a, championship, a champion needs in his attitude a motivation above and beyond winning. In other words, it, it, is, it takes more than pure talent. It takes more than ability. What separates the great from the good in anything is the possession of a, a, a higher motivation to succeed. And it's true in life, and it's also very, very uh, biblical. Significant goals in our lives as Christians, and uh, like our sanctification as Christians, uh, that goal takes time to achieve. Justification happens in an instant. It's how we become a Christian. In the moment that we trust in Jesus and we're born again, we are justified. That happens in an instant. But sanctification is a process that occurs from the moment we're born again all the way until our final breath in this life. And so it is a very long process that we are committing ourselves to, and it takes time to achieve it, and thus we need a motive for godliness that's substantial enough uh, to hold up over all of the ups and downs of life and all of the ups and downs that are involved in growing into maturity and into holiness uh, as uh, Christians. The question then arises, what motivation for growing in holiness can remain strong and fresh and powerful in our lives, not just in the first few days of our Christian lives or the first few weeks or months, but when our Christian lives and our journey uh, begins to head into years and then heads into decades and then into long decades, what great motive for continuing to grow in holiness will sustain us, will be powerful within our lives? I think the first thing that we need to begin in all of this is where Paul does by taking note of motivations for holiness that will not hold up over the long haul. They will not produce a long-term holiness or growth in this regard in a Christian. And he speaks of it there in verse 15. He makes mention of, uh, of a very uh, significant uh, motive that will not hold up in verse 15 when he writes, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. And what Paul is talking about here is he's talking about a fear-based relationship with God. He's not talking about a holy or a godly reverence and respect for God. That's something that does a good thing in our life as Christians. What he's talking about here is servile fear. It's the fear of a slave who cowers before uh, his master. He lives under this constant fear that if he messes up or he slips up, he's going to be punished by his master as a result. 
The interesting thing is, as you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, is to realize that under the Old Covenant of the, uh, of the, the Old Testament, especially at the time of Moses, this was uh, the dominant kind of uh, motivation and relationship that the children of Israel had uh, with God. Moses met with God face to face. He knew God. He had a personal relationship uh, with God. But the children of Israel as a whole, uh, they lived in dread of God. They lived in fear of God. They always felt that they were just kind of a, a hair's breadth away uh, from God judging them for uh, some wrong that they might do uh, in their life. At the time that God gave the law to Moses, the people, as they were there at Mount Sinai, and uh, they were witnessing all of the thunders and all of the lightnings and the flashes and the trumpet, and, uh, and the mountain is smoking, and, and when the people saw all of this, they trembled before, not be just before God, but just merely the manifestation of God and they stood afar off, and they said this to Moses. They said, you speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And they had that kind of servile uh, relationship with, with God. But I think that all of us uh, can recognize that nothing uh, can ever thrive in an environment of that kind of fear. Uh, no business will thrive over a long haul. It may thrive for six months. It may thrive for four years, but not over the long haul. No business will ever thrive. No church will ever thrive in that environment. No work environment at all will, uh, will uh, thrive. And certainly, no relationship will ever thrive. Where someone is engaged in that relationship, and this is the kind of fear that they feel uh, toward the other person within uh, the relationship. And yet, there is a world of people, a world of Christians who uh, possess a fear-based relationship with God. And they obey Him out of the fear that if they make one mistake, He's going to come down on them, and He's going to come down on them with both feet, and He's going to judge them very, very severely. Now, the interesting thing about having that kind of fear is that that kind of fear will produce a certain quality uh, of holiness for a short period of time, but it will never, ever hold up for the long term. Nobody can survive uh, under it when uh, months turn into years and years turn into uh, to, decades. Sooner or later, most people who build their relationship with God on that kind of a fear who use this kind of fear as the motivation for uh, holy, uh, living a holy life, ultimately they crash and burn. Uh, ultimately, they, they simply give up on all of it, uh, and so oftentimes will give up completely upon Christianity. They will conclude that I, I can no longer live under this kind of pressure. Uh, I must not be good enough to be a Christian. I must not be strong enough to be a Christian, and not realizing at all that they have never, ever experienced uh, Christianity at all in terms of how it's intended to be experienced, certainly not in the realm of our motivation for why we walk with God and why we desire, uh, <clears throat> desire holiness. And many, many uh, Christian churches and many very often uh, church leaders will resort to this kind of a fear in, in people and to produce a relationship in their life with God that is based upon this kind of a fear-based relationship with God. And one of the reasons that uh, people will do that is, again, it, it can show short-term results. And so, very often in that particular spiritual environment, they constantly present God as always uh, just a, at least a little bit displeased uh, with the people, or they keep them always a, a little uncertain about God's attitude uh, toward them, and they, and they must always be doing good in order to earn God's favor and uh, in order to be free from uh, the fear of, of His punishment. And then there, then there are others of us in this room and in the body of Christ 
where we don't need church leaders to do that to us. We don't uh, need some church organization uh, to do that at all in terms of producing and to help to produce such an understanding of God. We, by virtue of our own personality, we bring this kind of fear-based understanding of God into our relationship with Him, and we just assume that this is the way it is supposed to uh, be. But this servile fear, uh, the fear of a slave toward his master, uh, uh, who lives under constant fear that if he slips or if he messes up, uh, he's going to be punished by his master as a result. It's an inadequate motivation for holy living, and it will never, ever produce, number one, genuine holiness inside and out, and it will never, ever produce a uh, uh, long-lasting holiness or obedience in a Christian's life. Uh, there, there are other inadequate motivations for holiness uh, that include, for instance, legalism or a workspace relationship uh, with God. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to uh, sanctify myself in order to make Him indebted to me by virtue of my obedience so that He will have to uh, bless me. Now, there are a lot of problems with that approach to a relationship with God. Uh, But one of the problems with this approach is that most often the legalist ends up developing a deeper relationship with God's commandments than he ever does with God. Because God's commandments become the single great focus in his life, a greater focus in his life than even God himself. And because the commandments become their supreme focus, they end up missing uh, an uh, an intimate, personal uh, relationship with God in their Christian life. They may have a very deep relationship with the Word of God, but they lack a deep relationship with the God uh, of the Word. Another problem with this motivation is that it puts me in the driver's seat in my relationship with God. It makes me the initiator in the relationship, and it makes God uh, the responder. In other words, if I do this, then God will do that. And again, ultimately, over the long haul, it ends up crushing us. It ends up burning us out. Because uh, in all of this kind of negotiation that goes on with God, the reason legalism always fails is because we are never quite know how good we need to be in order to earn His blessings. And so we keep raising the bar of the man, raising the bar of the demand until it becomes something that ends up crushing even the most motivated and serious uh, uh, Christians in terms of holiness who operate under the, uh, under the mantle of, of legalism. Similarly, the, the same pro- there's the same problem with greed as a motivation for holiness. And greed is used as a motivation for holiness uh, in Christian circles in order to try and produce holiness in, in God's people, and certainly in the area of giving or raising money. And the idea is if you give such and such, uh, whatever it might be, of your time, of your money, if you give uh, this uh, to God, then God will be forced to give you a miracle. Or if you give money, He'll be forced to give you ten times the amount uh, that you uh, have, have given to Him. And so now we're obeying out of a motive of getting something from God. One of the problems with that, and again, there's a lot of problems with that motivation, But one of the problems with that motivation is that God won't play the game. He will not reinforce that uh, in His children. He will not bless that understanding of Him or that as a foundation of a relationship uh, with Him. So He will not reinforce that kind of understanding of Christianity by blessing it because here you have the person who is not being obedient out of a love for God. Uh, but out of greed. And greed always has a foundation in a love for self. It has a foundation in selfishness. So now I'm obeying God under the illusion uh, of wanting to please God, but behind all of it at its core is uh, I'm just playing a religious game for my own uh, blessings. Uh, 
Other motivations include uh, trying to become holy under the, uh, the motivation of the fear of man or under the motivation of pride or the motivation of self-righteousness. And so that you have these man-centered, works-based uh, motivations, and all of them are doomed to failure in the long run. They will never hold up in, in a Christian's life. They can never produce true holiness in a Christian's life. Well, that then leaves us with the question, and is there a motivation for holy living in our lives as Christians that is, first of all, holy? In other words, it's not, un, it's not unholy like all of the other motivations. Is there a motivation that I can operate under as a Christian in my desire to be holy that is first holy and then second is inexhaustible? That here is a, a, a motivation for holiness that won't hold up just in the first opening days or weeks or months of my Christian life, but here is a motivation that will remain fresh and strong and vibrant and powerful and influential in my life, even if I walk with God for 80 years, all the way to my dying breath, that this still provides a motivation to continue to grow in Christ-likeness and in holiness within my life. And Paul tells us here in this passage that there is. And the motivation is this. It is the motivation of love and the motivation of gratitude toward God through our obedience to His Word in, in response to the love that He has first shown us, and that is the motivation that holds up that we obey Him, and on the other side of all obedience is holiness. We obey Him in, res in response to the love that we have toward Him because of the love that He has first shown us. And He describes that love that God has shown to us here in verses 15 through 17. He describes it first of all in verse 15 that God has manifested or He has expressed this love toward us by adopting us into His family. Now, you think about that. Here we are. We're a bunch of, most of us are Christians in this room, and we think about being adopted into our family, into the family of God, and we can be thinking about what we're going to buy in Costco after the service is over at the same time. It's the danger of, of losing awe over these incredible truths and realities that are found in the Word of God. And to stop and think that each and every one of us as Christians, we have been adopted into God's family. And because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we have become, uh, God has made us His sons and His daughters. I don't know what kind of shape you were in when you became a Christian, but not everybody was in great shape. And there weren't too many families that were looking to adopt many of us. And they certainly weren't looking to share their name with us and to say, yes, you can become a part of my family, and by the way, broadcast it to the whole world that you belong to me. And God, when He takes us at our lowest, sometimes we're on top of the world outwardly in terms of how the world would look at us, success, money, uh, popularity, all these kind of things, but inside, absolutely rock bottom. And then others of us, we find ourselves rock bottom inside and out when we come to, to the Lord. And what's the response that He has to us? It isn't go clean up your act, or you're going to be an embarrassment to my name, or, uh, or any of those kind of things that He might very well have as a reaction in that. Instead, He adopts us into His family and makes us his sons and his, and his daughters. And there's a lot of love behind that decision that God makes to do that. It's interesting, Paul purposely uses the word adoption here, and, and, he, and he uses it uh, because in the context in which Paul is writing here, uh, the book of, uh, of Romans, the context is the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, when a child was adopted, that child took on all of the rights of all natural-born sons and children in that family. Rome itself, for all of its corruption, for all of its goofiness, it would not allow you to adopt a child if you were not willing to give that child 
all of the rights and privileges of all of your natural-born children. And this is what God has done for us. And what it speaks of is God's commitment to our lives. I think, you know, we live in the United States, and we're in a cultural war that's going on right now, and the institutions of marriage, the institutions of family, God, God's institutions, these things are under attack, and so we see the family unit is in a decline, and, and, and a very, very rapid uh, decline in, in the, the breakdown of the family unit. And I think so often when uh, broken families now become the norm or where uh, the mother or the father has no interest in the children or both of them have no interest in the children, it's harder and harder for children, you know, to to uh, understand this and then from their, their family that they grow up in and then carry it over uh, to God. But what Paul is saying is that when we become children of God, no matter what our parents were or weren't, that God takes that responsibility very, very seriously, and He will be faithful to that role within our lives. A second thing that God has done in expressing His love toward us is there in verse 15 as well, where He not only brings us into His family, but then He brings us into a relationship with Himself, and and a relationship of such intimacy that God Himself, by the Holy Spirit, invites us to have a relationship with God and to address Him as Abba, Father. And that, I mean, this speaks of the highest form of confidence that we can have in our relationship with God, the security of this relationship that we have with God. The term Abba there, it's Aramaic, and uh, in Aramaic was the, common, the language of the common man in Jesus' day in Judea. Uh, Greek was the language of the educated people, and so uh, it was Aramaic. Uh, Abba. The word father, is, it's used here as pater in the, uh, in the Greek language, and it means father. The interesting thing about uh, uh, the, uh, the Abba here of, the, of the, the Aramaic, it literally means papa. It literally means daddy. God invites us into a relationship with him in which we can call him papa, or we can call him daddy. And it's not just words. This is the relationship that he wants with us, that he invites us to to have. And Daddy speaks of a beautiful intimacy in a relationship. It speaks uh, when a child speaks to their father and refers to that father as Daddy. That's a child who is confident in the relationship, comfortable in the relationship, feels free to express intimacy in that relationship. And that's what God invites us to do and the relationship that He has provided uh, to us as uh, Christians. Every Jew under the influence of the Old Testament uh, knew God as Father, uh, but no Jew would have ever dreamed of referring to God the Father as Daddy or as Abba. And this is the kind of intimacy with God that the Holy Spirit has introduced into our lives as Christians. You know, when, when children are small, they, uh, they, uh, they will call their father typically uh, daddy. And then what happens? They grow into their teens, they grow into adult life, and daddy gives way to dad. And, uh, and, and it's, it's very rare to see an adult speak to their father and call him daddy. I've, I've seen it happen a handful of times in my adult life and always been surprised by it and blessed by it when I've heard it. It makes me stop and think, what a beautiful uh, relationship must be behind this kind of a, of a communication that is, is going on here. But typically, it gives way to dad. But when Paul talks to us about uh, referring to God and seeing Him and relating to Him as Abba, here is an intimacy with God in the relationship. And it is an intimacy that God wants to have with us, and it comes at His initiation. 
And it is something that is to not only mark our Christianity in the opening days and weeks and months uh, of our Christianity, but it is an intimacy that we are to carry in our relationship with God all the way to our dying breath and to see Him uh, in this way. It is something that none of us spiritually needs to ever outgrow. The third way that God has expressed His love toward us, as Paul brings to our remembrance here, verse 16, is that not only have we been made a child of God, but the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There is something, an absolute marvel that happens when we are born again. And sometimes we don't notice it when we are born again. And it is long months or years later when we look back, maybe even in this room today, and we look back at that moment that we are, are then in awe of it. But the, the, the glorious thing that happens is when we're born again and the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and, uh, and we now call uh, God Father, we now call Him Abba, and when we begin born again in, in one instant, and then in the next instant, we begin to call him Father, and marvel of marvels, it feels right. For the first time in our life, it feels right to call him Father. And the reason it feels right, the reason there's no awkwardness uh, with it at all is because it is right because of what the Holy Spirit has done within our lives. As the Apostle John declared in, in John chapter 1, but as many as received him, that is, received Jesus, to them he gave the authority to be called the sons of God to those who believe in his name, that is, Jesus' name. He further declares among these blessings, these expressions of God's love in verse 17, that we have become heirs of God. And again, this is the idea that we're not some kind of a, a, an off-brand of child within the family. It means that I've, I've not only been born again, become a part of a family, but being an heir means I am included in this family equally, and I am included in this family forever. And then just when you think it can't get any more mind-boggling than the list already is, you notice that it does when he declares again in verse 17 that we have become joint heirs with Christ. All that belongs to Jesus in the sense of everlasting life, in the sense of the heavens and the earth that all belong to him. There is a measure in which, a way in which we will never be him. We will never be divine. But he will now share his life, everlasting life with us and all of creation with us through all of eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. And there really is mystery here in, in all of this in being a joint heir with Christ. But I think the single great thing Paul is trying to get across in this great statement in its context is the absolute confidence that we can put in our salvation, that it is a sure thing and that it is as much as it is a blessing to us in this life, it will be an even greater blessing to us in the life to come. Now, Paul talks about each of these things elsewhere in the New Testament, but the reason he brings this list of five things up here in the context of our sanctification is to prime the pump of our remembrance as Christians concerning what God has first done for us out of his love for us so that we might then be reminded that the highest motivation for holiness, for sanctification, for holy living, for obeying the word of God is to do so out of a heart of love and a heart of gratitude toward him that we would grow in holiness as an expression of our love for the love that he first showed us. Christianity is many things, but one thing it is at its core. Christianity, and I speak of it on its practical level, Christianity is a response. 
Christianity is an obedient life lived in response to what God has first done for us. And that's why the Apostle John wrote famously in 1 John, we love him because he first loved us. We love him because. That's a reason word. That's a response word. We love him because he first loved us. He provided us with a motivation in in loving us first the way that he has. This very thing is modeled not only in the very uh, succinct statement of of John in his first epistle, but it's modeled for us in the very structure of books of the New Testament. You think about the book of Ephesians, six chapters evenly divided in two, three-chapter sections, and in chapters one through three, the thing is just jammed full of who we are, what we are, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And there God speaks to us about the fact that we've been predestined and chosen and redeemed and forgiven and adopted and sealed with the Holy Spirit and receiving resurrection power and so forth. Absolutely jams the first three chapters with all of these things that God has first done for us. And only then does he then venture into the final three chapters of that book to now speak to us about how we ought to live in response to what God has first done for us, in the light of what God has first done for us. The very structure of the le- Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, speaks to us of, of this very thing that Christianity is a response and, then, and that's why Paul begins the very first verse of the final three chapters of Ephesians by in, in laying out the life that is consistent with, worthy of, uh, of what God has first done for us. He said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you, I beg you please, to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And he spent three chapters talking about uh, the calling with which we were called. The very thing is modeled in the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, all that God has done for us. Only then, in, in, uh, in, in chapter 12, does he begin with the therefore. Now, here is the response that is worthy of all that God has described and done for us in the first uh, 11 uh, chapters. And I would contend that a response to God's love as a motivation for our obedience and a motivation for our holiness, it will always produce a degree of holiness and sanctification that legalism can never produce, that guilt will never produce, that condemnation will never produce, that a fear-based relationship with God can never produce. And the Apostle Paul knew it concerning his own life. He declared as much when he wrote his first letter to the church or second letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. He declared of his own life, he said, for the love of Christ constrains us. For the love of Christ constrains us. You say, Paul, what's behind your life? What's behind that level of sacrifice? What's behind that kind of obedience? What's behind that holiness of a life? What's, the, what's behind finishing his race in the way that he did? And he declares it to us, for the love of Christ constrains us. And the word constrains there, it means to lay hold of. In other words, Paul said, the love of Christ has laid hold of me and has produced a holiness in me that uh, legalism could never, ever produce. And remember, Paul all knew all about these inferior motivations. He knew all about legalism in guilt and fear as motivations for holiness in a relationship uh, with God. And he said, this is the motivation that will hold up and will last a response to God's love. The love of Christ constrains us. I would, I would contend, in fact, that the hardest thing in the world to sin against is love. Uh, law is easy to sin against. 
but love for anyone who has any kind of life, any tenderness in our heart on a physical level. But speaking of our relationship with God, if there's any tenderness in our heart at all, any spiritual life within us at all, uh, love, the hardest thing in the world to sin against is love. To willfully sin against and to take advantage of a person that we know really, really, really loves us. I remember years ago with my wife, Karen, I think we were still dating, and she made a statement to me that, that uh, stuck and, uh, and uh, came to my remembrance years later when I um, became a Christian. But she made the statement uh, to me that the thing that caused her uh, to obey her mother in her youth. And Karen was, and her sister were given tremendous freedom, more freedom than you should have. Uh, I mean, they could have had any uh, youth or childhood experience. that They could have turned it into anything uh, that they wanted to. They could have, uh, Karen, I mean, she could have uh, had the freedom to live a life that would have broken her mother's heart. But it wasn't law that kept her in the perimeters that, that she kept within. But it, it was her, a love for her mother because of her, her mother's love for her. And I think that over the long haul of growing up in sanctification and in our relationship with God, all of these other motivations will absolutely fail us. They will absolutely fail us, and this motivation will ultimately rise to the top. And that it is that I obey God and I choose to grow in holiness in response to how loving He has been to me, how good He has been to me, and all of the love that He showed me first. And I choose to live this life now in response to all of that. And when we uh, mess up and we fail God and we sin, and then He forgives us and He gives us a fresh start, and he picks us up, and he dusts us off, and he remains patient with us, and he doesn't give up uh, on us and kick us out of uh, the family, though we may deserve it for some of the shenanigans we've done. And God does it over and over and over and over again in our lives. And as he does that after a while, we just can begin to feel, start to feel like a heel to continue to sin willfully against this kind of a God, against this kind of a heart. And we're so grateful for how good he's been to us that we now choose to obey, not to escape his discipline, but because I don't want to hurt his, his heart anymore. I want to bless his heart, and we do it because we love him, and we want to use our obedience now to express our love toward him. Again, as Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that thing that goes on in our lives where that moment in time where we're using all of these other motivations to become holy, all of these other, you know, ideas and formulas, and then finally one day we sin for the whatever time it is, and then God forgives us, picks us up, cleans us up, moves us forward, and then we think to ourselves, He has been so good to me that I cannot bear to willfully, deliberately sin against his heart and against this relationship the way that I have been ever again. And now I move into the highest motivation for holy living and obedience by virtue of that. And that becomes now the, uh, the motivation, and uh, the motivation becomes the health of our relationship with God. It isn't where I'm going to, you know, do this because I'm afraid that He's going to drop the hammer on me, or I'm going to do this because of this or whatever it might be. But that light goes on one day where we sin kind of that final sin in this cavalier attitude, and we look at it and we say, I, that relationship means too much to me, I, and I cannot, I cannot bear the distance that my sin brings into that relationship every time I commit my sin. 
And the relationship comes to mean so much to me that, that I, I become hesitant now to sin and determine now the power of the Holy Spirit to do nothing that will jeopardize or produce distance within that relationship. Someone has said concerning temptation and sin that it takes a passion to conquer a passion, and it's true. It always takes a passion uh, to conquer a passion, and, and the key to holiness in the, the Christian life is not to hate sin more, but to love Jesus more. And to come to that place in my life where my relationship with him becomes more important to me than any sin in my life. And I don't think that any of us will ever experience a fully victorious Christian life until that happens. I think about Joseph in the Old Testament in this regard. Potiphar's wife, uh, probably a knockout. He's a young man, probably 18, 20 years old. She makes herself available to him, tries to seduce him, and, uh, and, and he responded that not only would this not be right to do to your husband, who has been nothing but good to me, but he said it would not be right to do to my God, who has also been nothing but good to me. It goes like this in Genesis chapter 39, uh, verse 9. He said to Potiphar's wife, there is none greater in this house than I, nor has he, that is your father, kept, uh, your husband, kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. And then here, the relationship with God. He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And Joseph, his, in his life, it was his relationship with God that was more important to him than any temptation, any sin, and it provided the single greatest protection against sin in his life in times of, of temptation. Recently, I, I was listened to a pastor who I respect very much, and I, and I continue to respect him very much. But he was sharing at a pastor's conference in a, in a Q&A session, and he, he scorned the idea of a pastor asking someone who had come in for counseling, can you tell me a little bit about your devotional uh, life? And he flatly stated that that was nobody's business. That isn't even the business of the pastor to ask that kind of question. And uh, I, I would uh, strongly disagree. I don't ask everyone I counsel about their devotional life with God, but I do ask about it when someone sees me about sin that is dominating their life, and they're living far short of a victorious Christian life as a Christian. And the reason that I ask that question is because I know that if they don't care about their relationship with God yet, enough to invest time daily in nurturing and deepening that relationship, then the relationship means really nothing to them, uh, comparatively uh, speaking yet, and as a result of it, they are without the single greatest motivation th uh, for holy living and that is to obey God's commandments out of a love for him, out of a relationship with him that is more important to them than any sin in the world. And so I begin in that place. What does the relationship mean to you? And, and, and thus, that's where we begin. It's not the only thing that I will say to them, but it's where we begin. Why? Because it takes a passion to conquer a passion, and it takes a passion for God to conquer the other passions that are within our lives. And long-lasting sanctification and holy living, it always begins. It always begins. There is no shortcut on this issue. It always begins with developing a deep, meaningful relationship with God that I come to love more than any sin in my life. And so, in terms of our motive for sanctification and holy living as Christians, God has provided us with the highest motivation, an inexhaustible motivation, because His love is inexhaustible. And it is to obey Him and to serve Him out of a response 
to this immeasurable love and grace that He has first shown us and continues to show us. And all of this is important because possessing a proper motivation is vital to success in any great endeavor in life, but also in this great endeavor of sanctification in the power of the Holy Spirit. A relationship with God based not uh, uh, on uh, the spirit of bondage to fear, but in response to love. A, a relationship uh, based uh, with and a desire for holiness, not uh, based upon uh, the, the not the spirit of the bondage of fear, but again, or, or or legalism or all of these other motivations, but in response to His love, because it's the love of God for us that is inexhaustible and provides us again with an inexhaustible motivation for holiness. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, you look at our hearts there. Everything is open and naked before you with whom we have to do. And Lord, you know what our progression is in all of these things. You certainly know what mine has been. And how, Lord, and I know I speak for many in this room today, you worked and you worked and you worked and you refined all of these other motivations that were in my heart for holiness, but that, that failed me. But then you brought me to a place where the relationship meant more to me than even life. And that the great hindrance in prayer was that, in, in sinning, was that it would hurt the relationship between you and I and create distance in that relationship that I cannot live with, I cannot exist with. And then, Lord, began to use that motivation in response to your love to take me into a place of holiness and that I would have never otherwise known. And, Lord, I thank you that that is my testimony and the testimony of so many within this room. And we thank you for your love for us this morning. Thank you for providing us with an inexhaustible uh, love and motivation for responding to, Lord, in our obedience to you and the longing that you put in our heart ultimately to grab every opportunity we can find to bless you with our obedience. We pray in our hearts, Lord, for our own lives. We pray for the men and women that stand on our left and our right and in front of us and behind us in this room. And we pray that in every single life where there are these motivations for holiness that only lead to disappointment and failure, but people are operating under them, we use, pray that you use this text, Lord, in your word and use this sermon to burn them away completely and to cause each of us to see the perfect waste of time that they are. And then we pray, Lord, that you would take us by your Holy Spirit and lead us into this motivation of response to your love, and then take us out into the holiness we would never otherwise know. And all of the joy and all of the peace and all of the freedom that comes with it as well, we look to you for that continued work of your Spirit within our lives in this regard. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.